The world around us and in us is constantly teaching us when our perception is not distorted, when we have the capacity to see, to listen, to be with what is as it is. A lesson that is so prominent right now, that's so visible, tangible, unavoidable, is a lesson we can gain from looking at the world of nature at this time. The lessons on impermanence. To watch the colors turn, the weather change, the scurry and flurry of the animals. On some level, it might touch our hearts. Our hearts may open in seeing beauty. But if we look deeply at what's happening in the world as right now, the lesson that we can witness has the power to transform our lives. There's been many great teachers through time who have pointed to over and over again the truth of impermanence. I'd like to share a story about Zen master Suzuki Roshi. And this is from the book Crooked Cucumber by David Chadwick. And David Chadwick was a longtime student of Suzuki Roshi. And he was at a Dharma talk being given by him. At the end of the talk, there was the opportunity to ask questions. And David asked, Suzuki Roshi, I have been listening to your lectures for years, and I really love them, and they're very inspiring. And I, I know that what you're talking about is actually very clear and simple. But I must admit, I just don't understand it. I love it, but I feel like I could listen to you for a thousand years and still not get it. Could you please just put it in a nutshell? Can you reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Everyone laughed. He laughed. What a ludicrous question. I don't think any of us expected him to answer it. He was not a man you could pin down. <clears throat> and he didn't like to give his students something definite to cling to. He had often said not to have some idea of what Buddhism was. But Suzuki Roshi did answer. He looked at me and he said, everything changes. Then he asked for another question. Everything changes. It's not out of the grasp of our understanding. Sitting here, we see it in the course of a day. The many things that come and go. You know, the moment, times of peacefulness, calmness, restlessness, the doubt, times when desire is strong, sadness. It all shifts and changes. 
We all know it to some extent. And here is this great teacher, a great teacher of our time, having said, it's Buddhism in a nutshell. And, you know, I know from my own experience that that Zen masters do not like to give you anything to hang on to. I once practiced with a man named Hogan Daido Yamahata, and he had deeply inspired me. I had the opportunity to take my husband to meet him and was quite excited about this. And we went to an evening of teachings, and then we were driving home after. And, you know, I was curious to see how my husband was affected by him. And then, so I'm kind of probing a bit, and all of a sudden he says, no handlebars on that guy. I was reading a book by a uh, Tibetan teacher named Patro Rinpoche. It, it, the book's called Words of My Perfect Teacher. And pa- Patro Rinpoche was one of the great Tibetan teachers of the 19th century. And he, in his life, actually shunned the monastic life and took to the life of a uh, wandering homeless person. And he actually wrote his book living from a rustic hermitage under an overhang of a rock. And when I was reading his book, I was just so struck. He hammered on impermanence, the needing, the necessity to understand it. And I'll come back to something else he says later, but he quoted another Tibetan teacher, Geshe Potawa. And Geshe Potawa was once asked if there was only one practice that we could take from all of the different practices that are offered in the Buddhist tradition, what would be the most important one? And he responded by saying, that of impermanence. He also said, at first, meditation on impermanence makes you develop faith. In the middle, it's conducive to diligence in your practice. And in the end, it helps you to give birth to wisdom. Ajahn Chah, from the Thai forest tradition, probably many of you are familiar with him. He was renowned for saying over and over again, it's not permanent, it's not sure. In fact, he said it so many times that he said people would leave. They got tired of hearing it. He said they probably went out looking for something more certain. He said, but they'll be back. And then the Buddha himself. He was once asked by Ananda, Venerable Sir, uh, and just for anyone who might not know, Ananda was his attendant, Ah, attended to him for many years, was very close to the Buddha. So Ananda asked, Venerable Sir, It would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief. Wouldn't you love to have asked the Buddha that question? So the Buddha responded by giving a short discourse on, you guessed it, impermanence. At the time of the Buddha's death, his last statement to us, all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. 
so many teachers asking us to look into impermanence, to contemplate it in our lives, to see it for ourselves, to understand it, because it can release the heart from the grips of suffering. I'd like to share an enlightenment song from a nun who lived in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Mitakali, and before she ordained, she was said to be a very angry and difficult person. And then she heard the Buddha give the Satipatthana Sutta discourse. And the Satipatthana Sutta is the very sutta on which the practice that we're doing here is based. And she wasn't like many people in the time of the Buddha who heard a discourse and were suddenly enlightened. She was someone much like us who had to put in a lot of years of hard work. I wanted to read her enlightenment song because it clearly says what was happening in her mind at the time of enlightenment. So this is from Mitakali. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teachings has been done. It sounds so simple. And as, as I watched the elements of body and mind rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teachings has been done. If nothing else, it can confirm we're on the right track. Sitting here throughout the day, watching the elements of mind and body arise and pass away again. And yet, probably not many of us are sitting here completely free. Why is this so? That we see on one level the truth of this impermanence and yet we're not completely free. The understanding that we do have probably does help us a lot in our lives. That there are times when we see things changing and it's okay. 
we feel at ease with it, at peace with it. Sometimes in a moment when maybe there is some struggle and we remember the truth of impermanence, it might even in that moment help the mind to let go. But it's quite likely that we don't always live from an understanding of this truth that is with us moment by moment by moment. And so there's times where we lapse into a distortion of perception. A distortion of perception, and I spoke about this last week, the first one being of seeing that which is impermanent as permanent. And it tends to happen when we really like something, when things are the way we want them to be. And, you know, just because in that occurring there is some easing of tension, it's easy to think, ah, now I've got it. It's going to be this way forever. And we lapse into a sense of permanence. Sometimes we like the truth of impermanence. If we're sitting here in a lot of pain and suddenly it's gone, we like it. Maybe we've been practicing here and we've had a really disturbing neighbor and then suddenly they leave. We like it. So sometimes impermanence suits us. But then there are the times where we fall into, lapse into, thinking that things will always be a certain way. This can happen when we're not paying close attention. That when we don't have an unwavering attention we don't see the continual arising and passing away of phenomena and impermanence gets concealed by this misperception of continuity. And so we live in the illusion of permanence. But this will not last forever. This too is impermanence. And if we have been attached to an idea, a way of life, a thought, a mind state, as being something that will last, when it does change, when this um, delusion gets shattered, and if our sense of well-being has been attached to that, we will suffer. There's consequences to lapsing into a sense of there being permanence. What can happen is that we take life for granted. We take the future for granted. We think that 
we may always be in favorable circumstances. And yet, if you look throughout history, there's been people who were born into wealth, into good situations, and may have died in poverty, may have died in horrible circumstances. And throughout history, conditions in a country can change overnight. Know that, that you can, we could wake up tomorrow and America could be in a different situation than it is today, and it might be very challenging. But we tend to take for granted when we're in times of comfort that this will continue. We can take for granted when we have the opportunity to practice that there'll be plenty of opportunity in the future. But we don't know this. We have no idea. Being on retreat, we can take this opportunity so for granted and become lax in how we practice because there's always tomorrow. Seeing in our practice, do we take the future for granted? A couple of years ago, I was doing a retreat and at one point, I experienced very strong chest spasms. And when I would experience these spasms, my breath would suddenly be cut. And it was the <coughs> And what it revealed to me was really surprising. I had always imagined that even if I died, there would be a final out-breath. And seeing the breath cut like this, and it felt very death-like, I realized that that was even taking life for granted. And when we don't take life for granted, we can be fully with just this breath. There's no future breath. All of our attention can be in this moment, with this experience, this opportunity. We stop doing what we so commonly do in our lives, postponing. I had a teacher once who used to say, every day I tell you to wake up, and every day you say tomorrow. When I was with this teacher, well, it was actually after I had left, uh, left his community, um, I was very, very sick. And at one point, I thought I was going to die. And at one point, that you know, it had been a point where it was like the death felt like it was in the future. And then it was one day, this sense that this is it. Today, death will come. I just couldn't imagine that the mind and body could go on in the state that it was in. And it was really interesting to me. I had just a few friends around at that time. And there I was feeling like I was going to die today. And whenever I said anything to them, they kept saying, oh, tomorrow we'll do that. Oh, tomorrow. And I, could, I saw what he had been pointing to, how there was this tendency 
to postpone everything until tomorrow. And in that moment, at that time, there was no sense of tomorrow. It had a very profound effect on my life. Of course, I still lapse into believing there is tomorrow, but for a period of time, I didn't. And it was quite an unusual way for me to live life because a lot of times in life, we have to plan for tomorrow. And every time there was some planning for tomorrow, my mind would go into the gap. You know, it was like I couldn't do it, didn't know how to do it. And yet, in life, it can be a necessity. So at some point, I learned that I could plan for tomorrow. I just had to be ready to abandon those plans if things changed. Actually, I was, had a moment tonight, too, where I was sitting out on my balcony, you know, just enjoying the, this warmth that was still in the air, and um, sitting there, and some mosquitoes were buzzing around me. And then suddenly I remembered the weather forecast. And so this is a bit of a preview on what's forecast for tomorrow. And it's frost, and frost for the next day. And I'm hearing these mosquitoes buzzing, and I'm knowing what that means to them. And I was just once again struck by how quickly things can change. There was once a famous sage who was asked where all his wisdom came from. And he responded by saying, I live as a man who, when he wakes up in the morning, doesn't know if he will be alive in the evening. Maybe seeing if we can do this in our lives, to really notice the thoughts that take for granted the future seeing if we can let go of the idea of that future and live fully now. Because impermanence gets concealed by this illusion of continuity, of there being a permanence, it really becomes important in our practice that we pay attention moment by moment. And we need to do this in a relaxed way. We need to know what our part is in doing this. And it's really just staying steady in the turning up. If we keep turning up, the truth reveals itself. We don't have to try to see impermanence, because it's happening. But in the steadiness, moment by moment, in the continuity of awareness, things are revealed as they are. This begins to inform us as to how we can live without trying to hang on to that which by its very nature will change. Not grasping 
hanging on to all of these experiences, all of this phenomena of body and mind that is subject to change. I'd like to share something from the Buddha, from the Anatalakana Sutta. And in this sutta, the Buddha was talking about how we often cling to all of these different aspects of our experience. And in this particular quotation, he's speaking about how we will cling to material form. He says, bhikkhus, how do you conceive it? Is form permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. He says, now, is what is impermanent painful or pleasant? Painful, venerable sir. Now, is what is impermanent, what is painful, since subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this is I, this is myself. The bhikkhus responded, no, venerable sir. All of these changing experiences, not fit to be regarded as self. So in our own experience, it's interesting to look at where we have lapses into believing there is a sense of permanence. One place we commonly experience it is in that of relationships. Our life is made up of many relationships. We live in a web of interconnectedness. And with many of those relationships, people will come and go. And this is fine. We're okay with it. But when it's people that are our dearly beloveds, it becomes more challenging. We have a way of slipping into the belief that these relationships will remain in our lives. And then it happens that change occurs. And the change may be because our children grow up and leave home. It may be because we've been in a relationship with a partner and their needs change. It may be because of sickness or death. But inevitably, things will change. And if our sense of well-being has been hanging on that relationship, we may find ourselves devastated, in deep despair, anguish. We often tend to take it very personally. We have forgotten that all conditioned things are of the nature to change. When we enter into any relationship, can we remember that one day it will change? Here on retreat, we can we get a glimpse of you know what other relationships in our lives may look like. As we're sitting here, we form a community. There's relationships within that. 
Sometimes we may find that we sit a lot in the hall and share that with others. Maybe there's someone who really inspires us. And we take a delight as we sit down on our cushion and see them sitting there. It helps to give us courage, confidence. And then one day, they don't turn up. And you know we kind of wonder, oh, what happened to them? And then we remember, oh, yesterday we were really gulping a lot. Or, you know, we were cracking our back every time we moved, and maybe it disturbed them, and so they left because of us. You know, we personalize the change that happens. Here at the Forest Refuge, we find that people come and go all the time. And many times, there isn't much announcement of that. And we can at times get very unsettled by it. It triggers in us feelings we may have about someone suddenly being gone. It's a way to look and see how we are with changing relationships. When we pay attention, when relationships change, we may begin to see that what can make it so difficult is our incapacity to be with loss. Because when someone's been close to us, there's been a warmth, a caring, and connection. When that is gone, absence will be felt. Many times, because we don't let ourselves feel loss, we will fall into despair when the loss occurs. It's said that um, during the time of the Buddha, when his two closest disciples died, this is Sariputta and Moggallana, and they died within you know, a short period of time from each other, the Buddha addressed the Sangha, the community of people around him. And he said, bhikkhus, practitioners, this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Moggallana have attained final nibbana. This assembly was not empty for me earlier. He also went on to say, it is amazing on the part of the Tathagata, and this is how he referred to himself, that when such a pair of disciples has attained final nibbana or realization, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. His understanding of impermanence was so deep that he knew these two people who were said to have been like his left and his right hand, when they were gone, there was absence. He saw the absence, but he wasn't broken by it. He went on to say, May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration not disintegrate. This is impossible. So he really lived his life knowing fully this truth of impermanence. And it helped him to face this loss with an unshakable heart. 
in our lives right now, we may not have the understanding that the Buddha had, that we may still, in moments of deep loss, feel a lot of sorrow, a lot of grief. But there's another teaching we can look to that comes from his attendant, Ananda. In the same year that Sariputta and Moggallana died, so did the Buddha. And then Ananda was there. He was facing loss. There was also another king whom Ananda had been close to. His name was Pasanadi. They all died within a year. And so this is from Ananda. He says, My companions have passed away. The master too is gone. There is no friendship now that equals this, mindfulness directed to the body. The old ones now have passed away. The the new ones do not please me so much. Today I meditate alone, like a bird gone to its nest. In times when we're faced with loss, we can turn to our practice, not trying to fill the loss with something else, but taking mindfulness, living with presence, being with the effect of deeply experiencing change, letting the truth of it be recognized in our own beings. In our practice, we can pay attention to any form of loss, anything that might happen. Maybe we break our favorite cup. Maybe we ruin our favorite clothes. Maybe we experience loss of concentration. Whatever the loss is, pay attention. It's a training in how to be with loss so that when deeper loss occurs, we will have confidence in our practice. We will know that we have the capacity to meet this moment. This is another teaching from Ajahn Chah. Conditions all go their own natural way. Whether we laugh or cry over them, they just go their own way. And there is no knowledge or science that can prevent the natural course of things. You can get a dentist to look at your teeth, but even if he can fix them, they still finally go their natural way. Eventually, even the dentist has the same problem. Everything falls apart in the end. So in our relationships, as they change, paying attention, not taking it so personally, knowing that change is inevitable. Another way we struggle with impermanence is in relationship to our bodies. If 
when we were young, there was a lot of identification with a young, youthful, healthy body. When these conditions change, there will be suffering. I had a funny experience once when, at this time of the year, in the fall, and you know, I was outside in nature and just seeing all these beautiful colors, and you know, I was just delighting in it. And then I suddenly realized, hmm, when I look at my own body and see it changing due to the aging process, I don't quite have that same sense of delight. You know, and looking at how we relate to aging, this is really a place we can deeply reflect on impermanence. And I know, I remember the very first time that I found a stretch mark. And, you know, I was a teenager, in late teens, and I found the stretch mark. <gasps> I was devastated. You know, it, w- it was traumatic. I remember going to my mother, Mom, what is this? Look at this. You know, it was like some sense of self was just destroyed in that moment. And there's been many moments like that. But don't run from them. Our culture doesn't help us. When you look at the advertising that goes on, you know, seeing all these beautiful bodies and and seeing all these anti-aging products against aging, you know? (laughs) It's amazing. We, we really get the impression that, you know, if aging happens to us, it's because we did something wrong. You know, if we really took care of ourselves in the right way, until whenever, I don't know, until we maybe transport ourselves into some heavenly realm, the body would be beautiful, healthy. But it's not the case. You know, just by the karma of being born, having a body, It's subject to decay. It will change. Let this be a contemplation that brings us closer to truth. And it gets harder as we age. The lessons, they come strong. I'm sure many of us have had encounters with the body that bring home this truth. And it does wake us up. You know, when our life may be threatened by illness. It brings us out of complacency. It brings us into presence. There has been great teachers who are role models for aging. One is Sri Nisargadatta. He was once asked, what is it like to be an old yogi? And he replied, oh, I just watch the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he roared with laughter. Do we roar with laughter as we see these changes? We won't if our understanding of impermanence is only conceptual. But 
if we look deeply, maybe we too can roar with laughter. As we contemplate impermanence, it's inevitable that we will come to contemplate death. They are so closely linked. Many of us have a fear of death. And it's a fear that often drives ourselves in really unhealthy ways. And that we often deny that fear and yet are run by it. It's something that's really hard to let in. That this body, mind, as we know it, one day will cease to be. These great teachers that I've been speaking of tonight also pointed towards the potency of reflecting on one's own death. That this too has the power to transform our lives, to reflect on the inevitability of death. His Holiness the Dalai Lama once said, Awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. Until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are obstructed. It's very difficult to take this in. I was watching the news one night and there was a soldier being interviewed who was in a troop that had lost a lot of his fellow uh, soldiers. And so he was being interviewed to see how he was coping with this loss. And he responded by saying that the only way that he could continue to go out each day into war was believing by believing that death would never happen to him. It changes our life to know that death will one day happen to us. A helpful reflection to sometimes just sit with this to reflect, to maybe sit imagining one on one's deathbed, and just to see what arises, to see if fear arises, to see if aversion, not you know, sometimes it's hard to make oneself do this. But this is a way we can come in contact with whatever fear may be there before we're actually on the deathbed. We can learn how to practice. We can learn how to be present.
I realized in my own life that there's another form of death that I actually found even harder to contemplate than my own death. And that's the death of this planet. Somewhere in my mind, I'd love to believe that this planet will be here for all of the children to come, that it will just continue to flourish. And yet, it too is conditioned. I had an experience, it was after 9-11. And on that day, I sat in shock upon hearing the news of what happened, as I'm sure probably all of us did. And I did something that I often do at times when I need inspiration, at times when I feel really confused. I went to the suttas and I opened. I opened, uh, I think it was the numerical discourses of the Buddha. And I just randomly opened it. And as I opened it, my eyes fell down on this line. One day, O monks, this world will end. I wasn't ready for this. I slammed the book shut. And I sat a little while longer. And then I gained a little bit more courage. And I thought, well, I'll open it, but I'll open it in a different place. And so I opened the book, and my eyes went down, and someone was asking a question to the Buddha. What happens when a world system ends? I almost slammed it shut again, but I didn't. I read on. And it was a little bit more heartening what I read. What I read was, most beings are reborn in the deva realm of streaming radiance. (laughs) It softened things a little bit. But what struck me was the Buddha was saying it matter-of-factly. He wasn't saying, oh, monks, it is so woeful. He understood. He understood deeply. All conditioned things are of the nature to decay. It reminded me of some years before when I'd been with my Zen master, Hogan Daido Yamahata, and we'd been talking about the state of the planet. And Hogan-san is a man that cares deeply. He is something of an activist. You know, when he is living in Japan, he would petition the government there when he saw them doing things that were harmful. He's a man that cares deeply. And one day, in this conversation about the state of the planet, he, in a very matter-of-fact way, said, we live on a dying planet. He didn't say it as a prophecy of doom and gloom, but he was equanimous with this. He wasn't collapsing or resigning himself in the way he lived life. He was still doing the best that he could to take care of this world. But he also lived with the wisdom that knew it's inevitable that this process of decay will happen. 
So, around us, death, decay, impermanence. It's not meant to be disheartening. And one time, I think this was after, very soon after 9-11 too, I was on a retreat. And, you know, just feeling, whoa, something of this time that we live in, the volatility, things dramatically changing in a moment. I came across this sutta, um, which is actually called, I think, Simile of the Mountain. And this is just to paraphrase something of what the sutta pointed to. And it was about what one should do when from all directions death is approaching. So from everywhere we have that wisdom or we can see that things are in this state of change, death, decay. How can we practice? And the answer is, as aging and death are rolling in on you, what else should be done but to live by the Dhamma, to live righteously, and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds? We live with, in accordance of the way things are. We take care in this moment. We wholeheartedly give ourselves to this life that is continually changing. We do that which brings about the alleviation of suffering, always turning our minds in the direction of truth. And we can only do it the best that we can from where we are. But we keep doing it no matter how close this death seems. The practice that we do here, it is such a great training because we can see on a microscopic level, this truth of impermanence. It breaks down this perception of there being continuity. It takes us into the insight of impermanence, where on a cellular level, we get informed of this truth. And this helps to decondition grasping, this tendency to want to identify, hold on to, experience. And this has the power to transform our lives. So this is again from Ajahn Chah. When the mind starts to realize that all things without exception are by their very nature uncertain, the problem of grasping and attachment starts to decrease and wither away. If we understand this, the mind starts to let go and put things down, not grasping onto things and attachment can come to an end. When it comes to an end, one must reach the Dharma. 
there is nothing beyond this. In our practice, seeing this impermanence moment to moment, the birth and death of a breath, a sensation, a sound, a thought, an emotion, all arising and passing. Seeing this over and over again, this is what helps to decondition the tendency to cling, attach, identify. So many teachers pointing to this relentlessly. I mean, some of the teachers I've come across, they pounded in, look, look, see. Really let it inform. Let it be known, understood. And to whatever degree it is, we can't force ourselves to have an acceptance of it. We have to work with our reaction to it. But we see our reactions too are impermanent. They change. This truth of life, fact of life, All conditioned things are of the nature to change. This, the understanding of this, being a gateway to liberation. So let's just sit for a moment. This is from the Tibetan teacher Patro Rinpoche that I spoke about in the beginning of the talk. It's a prayer from him. Impermanence is everywhere, yet I still think things will last. I have reached the gates of old age, yet still I pretend I am young. Bless me and misguided beings like me that we may truly understand impermanence. May all beings come to know the truth of impermanence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.